We're going to find ourselves tonight in Ezekiel chapter 18. And as you're turning there, uh, let me pray for us. Father God, we ask that tonight through your word, you would grant repentance to dead hearts. God, that you would grant reviving to smoldering wicks and that you would fan, fan them to flame, Lord God, through the power of your word. So God, we pray that we would see what you have for us in your word and we would hear it well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, this is death. My son's body, yesterday strong and lively, is lying listless and cold in a pool of blood. I've seen animals dying, even back in the garden, when the Lord replaced our inadequate leaf coverings with animal skins, sacrificing an animal for our protection. But this is different. Death has come to the human race, a race made in the image of God, a race that could have lived forever. It's here, the fulfillment of God's warning. You shall surely die. This excerpt from an article titled East of Eden by Simonetta Carter attempts in part to get at the experience of Eve dealing with the effects of sin. Death is something that we as a society attempt to ignore, deny, keep at arm's length. Despite all of our attempts, we can't escape the truth that as we were reminded of in our study of Ecclesiastes, for the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, there is a time to die. The verse we lo- we'll look at tonight confronts us again with the reali- this reality <clears throat> and asks two important questions that will guide our time together. So Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? This verse comes in the middle of a section where Ezekiel is debunking the faulty theology of the Israelites regarding personal guilt and personal responsibility. The generation he was writing to falsely believed that they were being punished for the sins of previous generations. In verses 1 and 2, Ezekiel writes, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. God answers this in verses 3 and 4. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. God's answer is that each individual bears responsibility for his own sins. The soul who sins shall die. Along with the responsibility of each individual is the responsibility that God has to be true to his promise of death coming as the result of sin. The soul who sins shall die. There's a lot to unpack there, but the thing that we want to have in the back of our minds as we consider our passage are these parallel tracks of individual and divine responsibility. So let's look at our first question. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? What a question. 
I think many people have a view of God in heaven, gleefully punishing wickedness, almost anxiously waiting for the opportunity to zap another wayward soul. Thankfully, we don't have to imagine what God's feelings are in relation, in relation to punishing people for their sins. In verse 32 of this same chapter, God answers his own question. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. And again in Ezekiel 33:11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even in the construction of our initial question, the implied answer is no. John Murray puts it this way, and I quote, This verse may be rendered, Do I at all desire the death of the wicked? The force of this is obviously the emphatic negative. I do not by any means desire the death of a wicked person, end quote. We see God's reluctance to judge played out in Genesis 18 as Abraham pleads for God to spare Sodom. I'm going to pick it up in verse 21. I will go down to see whether or not they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham goes on to say, well, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And the whole of scripture extends Abraham's questioning down to a single person. Will God hold back judgment for a single person? Yes, the man, Jesus Christ. God has indeed saved people from judgment for the righteousness of a single man. God's response is always mercy for the righteous. 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 2 Peter 3, 9 give us this truth in the New Testament. Both, to get, the same, both get to the same idea as our verse, informing us that God doesn't wish that any should perish, but desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So this first question, when we think on it, leads us to consider the nature of God. It confronts us with the reminder of death resulting from sin, but leaves us with hope that it doesn't have to be that way. Our God is a God of mercy. He's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 34. Spend time this week meditating on the mercy of our Lord. Remember that this mercy has been extended to you. Rest in it. Rejoice in it. Let it bring you to worship and praise for the goodness that he has shown. And as much as we may want to, we can't ignore that God has made the wages of sin death. 
The passage from Exodus 34 goes on to say, he will by no means clear the guilty. So on one hand, we have God not desiring death, yet responsible to judge. This potential conundrum leads us to the second question from the text and picking up in the middle of our verse. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Just as the construction of the previous question implied a negative response, this question implies an affirmative one. Murray's literal reading of this verse is, Do I at all desire the death of the wicked, saith the Lord Jehovah, and not rather that he turn from his way and live? How does this work? How does, turning, how does the wicked turning from his way lead to life? In Proverbs 12, 28, we read, In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. This life of a righteous man that lives is described for us in verses 5 through 9 of our chapter. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend interest or take lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. I'm not sure about you, but taken on its own, that passage I just read doesn't give me a lot of hope. I look at it and I think, that does not describe me. I guess life is not what I should be expecting. Ah, but there's one that is righteous. Jesus is the righteous man. It has done all these things perfectly. It's his sacrificial death that has paid the penalty for our sin deserves so that we can, as our verse says, turn from our ways and live. Verses, verses 30 and 31 in our same chapter expand on this idea. It says, Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. When we repent, we call our sin, sin, and, and acknowledge that it's not just our acts, but our very nature of our hearts that we need to turn from. We need to recognize that our sin is against God and his righteousness and look directly to our gracious, gracious, merciful judge and cry out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This repentance and turning from our sin can't be done on our own power. It's one of those cases in scripture where God commands what he alone can give. In chapter 36 of Ezekiel, he recognizes that the new heart and the new spirit are gifts of God and not the product of human effort. The faith to turn and look to our judge for salvation comes from God. We need his spirit to breathe life into our dead bones. Turn to him. Ask him for a new heart and a new spirit. Ask him to go with you 
so you can have his holiness and his righteousness. Then, like the righteous man I talked about earlier, you shall surely live. Maybe hearing this and thinking, I'm too far gone. My conscience has been wounded too much. I've done it, whatever your it may be, again. Be encouraged. We have a testimony of the scripture telling us of the many times that God brings life from death, health out of sickness, joy out of mourning. Yet we have reason to hope. God desires us to turn and live. As one author put it, therefore, if we have grievously provoked God's justice by presumption, let us not more wrong his mercy by despair, but hope, even above hope, in him whose mercy is over all his works. Against the number and weight of all our sins, let us lay the infiniteness of God's mercy and Christ's merits and the certainty of his promise confirmed by the oath As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of a sinner. If he returns, he shall live. There are dark clouds of judgment throughout this chapter of Ezekiel, and God will not shirk his responsibility to judge. Yet, here we have a ray of light. God doesn't take pleasure in rightly judging wickedness. Instead, he takes delight in the life that comes through repentance and faith. So turn and live. Let's pray. Lord God, we do ask that you would grant us continual repentance in our lives, that we would turn to you, our judge, in hope, and that you would grant us life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.